I love angry women because angry women are free. Reading is a collaboration between the writer and the reader. If Michelle Obama had natural hair, Barack Obama would not have won. Biblioteket er det originale internet. Det er det, jeg We need this Europe. And that's why we have libraries. Knowledge. Knowledge is power. Det her er live for det kongelige bibliotek. Stedet, hvor vi samler alt det bedste fra vores live-scene her på Den Sorte Diamant. Din vært, Lise Bak Hansen. Om 80 år er vandstanden omkring Danmarks båd til at stige omkring 70 cm. Men det er med en usikkerhed på hele 60 cm. Det vil altså sige, at vandstanden enten stiger 10 cm lige nok til at nå dig til ankrene, eller 1,3 meter nok til, at et 8-årigt barn vil stå under vand. Det er en enorm usikkerhed. Og det er en usikkerhed, som den danske professor og forsker ved Center for Is og Klima, Dorte Dahl Jensen, kæmper for at få ned. Det fortalte hun i en samtale med den kanadiske opdagelsesrejsende Ray Sahab, da hun i Ottawa i talkserien Arctic Imagination medvirkede. Talken er en del af Arctic Imagination, en serie af talks på tværs af Atlanten fra Danmark til Kanada, der kaster lys på transformationen, udviklingen og krisen i Arktis som et stærkt symbol, et mytologisk inspirerende landskab og en geopolitisk faktor. Dorte Dahl Jensen siger blandt andet, Jeg har brugt så meget tid på at tale med verdensledere og organisationer, og du kan blive ved med at understrege, hvor vigtigt det er, at vi handler, men nogle kan du bare ikke nå. Det er en af de mange pointer, som Dorte Dahl Jensen kommer ind på i den samtale, du glæder dig til at høre nu. So I think uh, I'll start with Dorte. First question. So Dorte, you're currently uh, at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, and can you tell us a bit about your research here in Canada? Well, I'll be pleased. And first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm I'm very honored to be here, and I'm totally awed by Ray and his great initiatives, uh, doing research for all kind of learning kids how to to see climate change around the world. I've been at the University of Manitoba for three years now. And uh, my research is focused on understanding how the ice is melting and what happens when the fresh water comes out into the ocean, especially the Baffin Bay between uh, Greenland and Canada, and how it impacts uh, the life of the people, how the fishery changes and uh, how the life changes as the climate and temperature increases. So it's been totally cool, but also very difficult, starting with two years of COVID, where it hasn't been possible really to visit the communities and be there. So I'm full of energy to get more done in the coming years. And what is your ongoing interest in ice? You've been a glaciologist for, for many years. How does ice continue to inspire your career? Well, the, the main thing I've been doing is uh, drilling ice cores, um, especially on the top of the Greenland ice sheet. Uh, the Greenland ice sheet is, is about 3,000 meters thick, and of course, as we drill down through the ice, we get into layers of snow that gets older and older, and we go back in time. So we look at the climate going back in time, and we can see that we've had 11,700 years of, of warm climate. And if we go further down and back in time, we get into ice from the glacial period, where we can see how cold it's been over Greenland, and we can see how unstable the climate was at that period. But if we go even deeper back in time and deeper down into the ice, we get down in ice from the, the last interglacial called the Amian, which was an interglacial period where it was uh, five degrees warmer in the Arctic than the present. 
And this is a, a, a very interesting climate period to look at because you can see what happens when it warms for a long period and, and how much does the ice actually melt when you go into a previous warm period. This is something that can give us the experience we need right now to understand what's going to happen in our future. So I think that's, that's something I find is really, really interesting. Yes, definitely. ICE has so much to tell us, and we don't think about that normally. Uh, Ray, uh, I'd like to ask you, what does it mean to be an explorer in 2022? Well, that's a really great question, but again, I want to thank you for inviting me today. And I've been speaking with Dorita backstage, <laughs> research some of the stuff she's doing. It's amazing, especially the bubbles. Learning about the bubbles back that have been frozen in ice. I've learned so much about ice in 30 minutes. Speaking with, with Dorita backstage has been amazing. Exploring, exploring and exploration in this time has been super interesting. Um, people ask me what it is that I do. I cross landscapes, remote landscapes, geographies all over the planet, whether they're the hottest places on Earth or the coldest places on Earth. I typically do ex expeditions in the Arctic in the middle of winter. I love being in the Arctic in winter when the sky is just barely lit and there's this purplish hue and it's incredibly cold, although I don't deal as well with the cold as I do the heat. And I love being in the deserts in summer to experience how hot the planet can be, how species can survive in such seemingly inhospitable places, almost unlivable places, but they do and they thrive. And so for me, it's not a matter anymore, maybe at one time it was, of crossing from A to B, 7,000 kilometers across the Sahara, but it has become so much more. Over the last years, it's become about connecting, using the technology that we have now, connecting students in classrooms all over the world who are following my expeditions, whether through social media or through the internet. I'm there, I'm gonna make the best use I can of that visit uh, and the knowledge that I'm gaining from being in these places, and I'm going to make the best use of that by sharing what I'm learning and who I'm meeting and the stories I'm hearing with students all over the world so that they can, without the resources, enormous resources that are required to go to these places, they can virtually be there with me and explore these places with me alongside as I'm there. And there's a lot to be learned through observation and experience. You know, if I could just say very quickly, when I ran across the Sahara, in 2006, 2007, we ran clear across Senegal, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Libya, and Egypt. And in traversing all of these countries, I learned about economics, agriculture, society, religion, climate change from the people who were there. And it was not lost on me how much of a relevant connection there can be between adventure and learning that our minds are opened. We're all explorers, human beings of one kind or another, whether it's in science or it's in endurance. And so I would say that that has evolved to this point now where it's the primary purpose for me being on expedition is to gather knowledge, learn, and then share. And what do you, how do you relate your work to climate change? Well, I wish I, you know, was, could go back in time 30 years, go back to university and become as esteemed as an academic as Dorda. But uh, and instead for me, things are very observational. We were talking backstage about a glacier on Baffin Island. I've crossed Baffin Island 10 times. And in all of these crossings every year that I've gone back in different seasons, I've noticed changes. 
And I've seen, for example, the Rundle Glacier or other glaciers recede dramatically. And these are things that I, not a scientist, are observing. Um, or some of, I, I, I did a crossing of Death Valley in California. I've done multiple crossings. But last year, in July, I attempted to cross Death Valley completely off-road, and I happened to be there in the 24-hour hottest period ever recorded in that region, and I believe it was the hottest temperatures ever recorded on the planet. And I thought to myself, it, it was like a Rolodex going through my mind of, oh my God, all these stories I hear about record-breaking temperatures in India and, and in Pakistan where people are dying, tremendous numbers of people, because it's so hot, it's not humanly survivable. And being in the middle of Death Valley and feeling that heat I think it was 134 degrees Fahrenheit and thinking this is not survivable what the hell am I doing out here number one number two you know extraction I got to get out of here but this is what can happen in the world I mean this is not the stuff of science fiction this is happening and it was like the best way I can describe it is like putting your hands in a convection oven to take a pizza out that feeling that your hands feel that is what the desert felt like and that's where we're headed in some parts some parts of the world you know yeah, does that answer the question? Oh, yes, it does. Okay. It's very, it's, Sorry. Yeah, it's it's uh, quite something. I think the people of even of Vancouver, last, you know, in the past couple of years, could you know talk about extreme heat. Mm -hmm. There's not a place that you know, not Death Valley, but Vancouver. All over the world, yeah. people are seeing temperatures that have never been seen before, and all we seem to hear about is records broken, records broken, records broken, mm -hmm. and the impact of that. You know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dorta, I, I was here for the talk on Friday, and you heard from Ed Bertinsky and Minnick, and one of the um, extraordinary facts that, that uh, I learned was that uh, it takes one one-hundredth of a second for a hundred tons of Arctic ice to melt, which I found ex extraordinary, uh, unbelievable. Is, is that what your research has suggested, and what, what kinds of extraordinary things have you, you know, have you learned uh, you know, through your work. Well, I know that's uh, Mini Grosing that came with, with that number, and I, I've never heard it pronounced that way. I think it's a very strong message to do it that way, but I had to recalculate. But it's absolutely true. There's uh, 250 gigatons per year uh, that's lost from the green ice sheet, and that's uh, equivalent to about uh, one centimeter of, uh, no, one millimeter of sea level rise. Um, so we, we follow the, the evolution of the Greenland ice sheet, how much mass the Greenland ice sheet is, is uh, losing. And uh, we do see that uh, it's been accelerating through the last uh, 20 years. We, we lose more and more. And uh, in average, we have uh, three, three millimeters of, of sea level rise every year, where one is coming from Greenland, one is coming from all the small Arctic glaciers that Ray was talking about, and the last millimeter is, is a composite of many things, mostly the expansion of seawater due to the, to the heating of the water itself. But uh, um, if you melt all the small glaciers in the world, all the Arctic um, small ice caps and glaciers in Canada, in, in Sweden, Norway, uh, Iceland, uh, um, um, everywhere, you'll get a sea level rise of half a meter. But if you melt the Greenland ice sheet, you get a sea level rise of, uh, of seven meters, and if you melt Antarctica, you get a sea level rise of, 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 uh, of 70 meters. So you can see that it's Greenland with the 7 meters and Antarctica with the 70 meters that are the real threatening components of the ability to lose mass and, and gain sea level rise. So when we look at Greenland, we see that Greenland is losing mass in two ways. 
First of all, it's warming over Greenland, and uh, it's warming stronger over the Arctic than it is globally. It's a warming of, of three to four, four degrees in, in average. And uh, for that reason, we see more melt along the margin of the Greenland ice sheet. Uh, but that's only half the mass loss. The, the second part of the mass loss is, is the acceleration of all the, the ice streams that are, uh, that are pushing ice and calving it out as icebergs in the oceans. And, and that's actually a very fascinating way of uh, mass loss, that we have these, it's kind of rivers of ice that, uh, that push themselves through the, the, the slow-flowing ice cap and, uh, and, and flows out onto the, onto the fjord where they calve uh, the mass off as icebergs. And that's 50% uh, of the mass loss comes in that way. And we don't really understand what these ice streams are doing and how they react when, when the, the climate is warming. And I think that that's something that's really, really important to understand because I'm, I apologize for coming with an example from, from Denmark. But if you look at the, the predicted sea level rise in Denmark in year 2100, um, the, the predictions are um, 70 centimeters plus minus 60 centimeters. So either it's 10 centimeters or it's 130 centimeters because the uncertainty on the value is so enormous. And I think that, that that's a, when you think about it, it's really, really extreme that we don't know better what's going to happen into our future. And that, that's what I want to address. How can we get this uncertainty down? How can we get better estimates of what the sea level rise will be into the future? Because it's terribly expensive um, to protect your countries against the sea level rise. And a, a major part of the population um, on Earth are living very close to the ocean. We can, I mean, Denmark is obvious, but also the Netherlands, but Bangladesh and big areas um, in India are, on, you know, below the, you know, are critical. Um, and how can they protect themselves? How can we give them a life if, if we don't know what's going to happen? First thing, at least, is to know what's going to happen. So that's why I want to work, I want to work a lot with the ice streams and understand how, how, how they're moving and, and how, what influenced them, how they will accelerate when we go into a warming climate. I think that's really important. That was a long rant. Sorry for that. Yes, very interesting. Um, I'd like to ask you both about your experience with Arctic communities in Canada. Ray, perhaps you can Arctic, start. In, in what context? Uh, so what, you know, what, I guess, um, the people of the Arctic are um, really at the at the, the the front end of you know what all this that that Dorte is talking about and the idea of climate change and global warming and so you know some ways here in Ottawa we've been sort of blissfully insulated from a lot from the you know the coastal effects the Arctic effects um, and some of the extreme temperatures too. Um, what has your experience been with with people and communities uh, in the north, and you know, uh, as you know, as we grapple with with these changes, and you know, and the need to understand climate change and the need to act on it? Well, it's you know, again, approaching things from a very non-scientific perspective, you know, just through friendships that I've made over the years and observationally, being on the land uh, with many folks in the communities, uh, friends of mine. Um, you know, there's, there's obviously these conversations of change. I mean, things have changed. So if we go looking for, for example, there's a friend of mine in Kikiktajwak, we'll go looking for polar bears, you know, and we're looking in different areas or, you know, maybe they're in different areas, you know, than they were before. Um, you know, it's, it's, my experience has always been when traveling in the communities that uh, people are very resilient, right? And so, 
they have adapted, obviously, to this dramatic change in the Arctic. But I think, you know, following it from more of a scientific perspective um, is it, probably less anecdotal than it is with my relationships. I mean, we're always there and we're doing things and we're learning and I'm learning as we go. And things definitely have changed, as, as we've said, over the years. Um, but uh, it, it, I would say that that's been my experience in the communities is very much um, the places we go or uh, the times of year that we're able to do things have changed, you know, and it just comes up in conversation about wildlife is not here when it was there and these sorts of things, you know. So seeing those changes yeah, in day-to-day -day life. And, and being there with my friends and seeing these things and learning about these things from them where there could be a conversation of, well, you know, like 10 years ago it was like this or that, you know, and it's dramatically different than the way things were in a very short period of time. I think that that's the thing that, that it observationally, it seems like things are accelerating. Yeah, That's how it feels when I'm in the north. And Dorta, what has your experience been or what is it now with Canadian Arctic communities? Well, <clears throat> if I could just start with, with uh, some example from Greenland. Um, when you talk to, to people, I think the most important thing is that the, the time period where you have the, the winter sea ice, sea ice has reduced a lot. And uh, for example, the fishery of, of halibut, which happens on sea ice, is a very important source of income. And with the reduced uh, fish, fishing time on ice, uh, this uh, reduces the amount of halibut that can be caught. Uh, so when you talk to the fishers, fisher people in Greenland, that would be their first, uh, first words about uh, what climate changes are doing. But then again, if you talk with others, they would also say we can, we can grow more potatoes in, in South Greenland. Um, and I think that's, that's also very characteristic for, for climate change, that it's not always negative. There's also some positive things. But I think Greenland is also a little different from Canada because um, basically all communities are standing on, on rocks in Greenland. There's no effect of melting permafrost. So, so if you go to Canada, uh, the, the fact that it's warming so strongly and the permafrost is, is, uh, is, is reducing makes enormous infrastructure problems for, for communities all across Canada. The waterways are not frozen for so long time, but infrastructures like roads and airports are very hampered. Uh, by the infrafrost damages that are coming now. So there's enormous impacts on the communities of, of uh, climate change. But one thing that, that, that I find is, is super, super interesting is, is the fact that we have the, the, the open water area uh, between um, Canada and Greenland up in the north of the Baffin Bay, uh, named the, the Pikialasosowak area. And it's an area that the water keeps open during the winter time. And for that reason, fish and seals and whales, they gather there. And of course, it's a very, very important hunting area for the communities around this area. Um, and, uh, you know, before, in the old days, uh, the populations on both sides of the Baffin Bay, they were one family. They moved uh, back and forth between the communities on, in Canada and the communities uh, in Greenland. But because of, you know, borders and difficulties traveling, they're not allowed to move back and forth anymore. But there's been some initiatives uh, between the indigenous organizations to make a self-governant area up in the north. And I find that's, that's the way we should go. I think that's super, super important. And one thing we're doing is looking at the effects of climate change on this area, what happens as it warm, warms? Will the, the open area continue to be there? 
because there is some evidence that as it warms, then the, the, the blocking of the icebergs um, from the NAR Strait, that you, know, you block the ice coming down, and this is part of the reason of the, the open water is there. It's, it's, uh, it might stop because uh, icebergs will become smaller and, and the, the strait can't be blocked. Uh, so I find that's a very interesting thing if this will continue to be open because that will certainly impact the communities a lot if the conditions change. You were saying something uh, when we were speaking in the green room about bringing indigenous knowledge and ownership to the work, uh, you know, to the research and the and the work that's being done now. Can you say something about that to us here? Yeah, there, there was a big report written uh, just a few that was finalized just a few years ago, a report on on um, indigenous uh, research, um, how to to change things. So it's not just. Uh, Northern, you know, southern researchers coming up to all the communities and uh, wanting to do their research, um, but it's important uh, that to involve the, the the communities, the indigenous uh, people in in the work, and not just in a way that you have an elder that's part of your research program, but that the research is really driven by the communities and also determined by the communities what research is important for them to understand, you know, for them to prepare their future, what do they need to know, what do we need to focus on? And I think that report is really, really important and something all researchers should read and take into their mindset uh, when they uh, prepare research uh, programs in the North. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. Ray, I see you're wearing a T-shirt for your organization, Impossible to Possible. Can you tell us a bit about that? What is impossible to possible? Yeah, it sort of it follows some of what Dorda was just saying. Um, I believe our greatest resource for the future is youth. It's our young people. Um, I see it in the north, young indigenous youth. I was just in Pangertung the other day and seeing young people, you know, thriving, entrepreneurial thinkers, people making change. And so what Impossible to Possible is basically, it's an organization that I and some other friends of mine got together and founded in 2007. All of us are volunteers. Everything we do is 100% free. And essentially what we do is we take young people between the ages of 16 and 21 onto learning-based expeditions all over the world. So they can witness firsthand, they do some of the things I do, like they're out there marching across the you know, jungle in their shoes and their backpacks and all that, but they're learning on the ground from indigenous peoples in these areas. They're learning about subjects such as, could, it's wide ranging, biodiversity, uh, ecosystem services, healthcare. They're learning about all of these various subjects and through peer-to-peer -peer connection, their expeditions are um, uh, prompted through social media, but as well through um, live websites that we create using satellite technology. You'll have 40, 50,000 students around the world who are engaged live with our young people on Impossible to Possible Youth Expeditions, learning what they learn as they make their way through the Amazon or through Tunisian Sahara or through the Canadian Arctic. And so I feel that investing in young people is investing in our future and giving them the opportunity to go on from a youth expedition or observing and being part of it a world away from a classroom is very impactful. And we've seen people, you know, young people go on to do extraordinary things after being on an impossible, impossible expedition, huge leadership roles, Rhodes Scholars, all sorts of amazing things that they go on to do. 
um, that really impact the lives of others. And so that's why, that's what Impossible to Possible is. And that's why um, I'm very passionate about it. It's the thing I love the most out of everything I do. You know, I trade it all just to do the foundation, foundation work. That's amazing. I wish that had existed when I was 18. <laughs> I get that a lot. That sounds me. wonderful. Yeah, just incredible. Yeah. Um, so, Ray, your life has changed a great deal since you discovered ultra running and, you know, and took on uh, the work of your organization. And um, so could you speak a bit about how personally, how personally you've been affected by, um, you know, engaging so deeply with the outdoors, with nature, with the world and um, yeah, and what that's meant for you as a person and how, you know, how you've, you've changed and, and, and where you are versus where you were before you saw, you, you had seen so much and learned so yeah, much. That's a really great question. I mean, and I'll try to, I tell really long stories, so I'll try to keep this concise as I possibly can, but you know, life is a series of transitional moments, you know, and I'm in my mid fifties now. Uh, when I started doing all this, I was 30 years of age. Prior to that, I was smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Very unhealthy guy. Didn't really care too much about anything until I discovered the outdoors. I was introduced to it. And through adventure and through visiting so many different places that we don't even really think about, you know, that we don't really, they're not really in our mind's eye necessarily. But by visiting these places and learning from others, what I realized and learn now at this point in my career, is there's a massive interconnectivity, interconnectivity between all of us on this planet. Like, we're all connected. And the trip on the planet, if we're lucky, that we get is about 75 years, 77 years, in some countries much less than that, on average. So in that time that we have to spend on this planet, learning as much as we can about the world around us and the people that occupy this planet, I think is... Um, I know for me has become a life's purpose, but I think in a lot of ways for all of us, there's so much that we can learn that's experiential through visiting and traveling and even in our own backyard. I live in Gatineau Park. I learn something every day. I've lived in Gatineau Park for 20 years. Every day I learn something new when I'm out there. So I think by immersing ourselves in the outdoors, become we become more connected to that grand interconnectivity if that's not getting too out there. And I think that it's... Um, it's on all of us to to be out there as much as we possibly can, to learn as much as we possibly can. Yeah, it's very inspiring. Now, Dorte, you're a scientist. Your work is very dispassionate. You're working with facts and figures. But what has it meant to you personally? How have you been affected by your the, you know the work you've done over decades? When I I started as as a climate student, really far back in time. And I did it because I loved climbing mountains and jumping around on, on glaciers. So I thought, you know, work, finding a career where you worked outside would be fantastic. And uh, I've, I've loved it ever, ever seen since then, the, the ability to, to um, participate and form field work and, and do it and come back and work the results, work with the data and produce results and publish them in journals um, with some knowledge that's really important for everyone. Um, so, so I, I think that the change of, of being kind of an expeditioner, just going to the, the ice sheet and doing something that's very exotic uh, to, to, the, to the, the way it is now, where, where climate is something everyone has on mind and everyone is very interested in hearing and find it's very, very relevant for all of us, is something that has changed, uh, you know, has changed through my career. 
But just to add on to what, what Ray has said, uh, when we go to the Green Ice Sheet, it's an international program. We normally have 10 nations involved. And uh, we always bring our young students to the field. They're not quite as young as your, yours, Ray, but we always bring as many as possible with us. We have um, 100 people, 100 to 50 people going through our camp during a season. They work in, in an international team of students and, and, and form an amazing network of, of researchers. And uh, I think what we do is also contributing a lot, uh, putting out climate ambassadors into the world, young students, young researchers that are very engaged and uh, excited about communicating climate and the importance of it to the rest of the world. So it's another age group, but it's, it's, I think it's also something I'm very passionate about, the way to involve young people and educate young people and bring the knowledge out in our world. Because I use a lot of time trying to communicate climate I go to many meetings, I've talked to, to many um, leaders of nations and whatever organizations there is, and you can continue to repeat how important it is to do things to, 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 to change our climate, to reduce the emissions of, of greenhouse gases. And you can keep saying it and saying it and saying it, and it's like you, you never reach through to all people, you can just continue saying it. And I think uh, it's so important that we get to a point where we take some more serious actions and in this, in, in, for, for greenhouse gas and, re, and in reducing the, the warming we have in our future, we really have the whole world to, to, uh, to, to move. It's not enough that Denmark, we, we change our habits or Canada changes its habits. We need India, we need uh, Russia, we need China and, and the US. We need all nations to change their habits before we really are able to reduce the, the emissions of, of greenhouse gases to our atmosphere. So I think it's really important. And the final question from me is going to repeat something that, that your friend Brad asked in the green room, and it was about hope. Do you have, are you optimistic about the future? We've heard so much about your work and how, you know, there are so many worrying, you know, worrying things that you are, you know, dis discovering and measuring, uh, Dorta, and, you know, the changes you've seen, Ray, and that you've talked to people about, um, you know, where is there room for optimism? Go ahead, Ray. Yes. I, I am very much a, not even a glass half full person, I'm a glass overflowing is the way I look at life. And uh, I'm very hopeful of, of the future. I have two daughters, 14 and uh, 11, and I, they know more than I knew at that age. I just think that the youth of today are so progressive and so, um, you know, aware because of the work that people like Dorita are doing around the world that, and with the, you know, with our, the internet and, and, and social media, which is a double-edged sword, but on the good side of things, they're able to, they're gonna enact so much change in the future. Our future leadership is actually going to do things. It's gonna be built, I truly believe, um, all leadership in science and, 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 and politics and everything, from a new generation of thinkers that will make a massive change. We're not putting all the, you know, the hard work on them. We have to do things now, as, as Dorita was just saying. We have to do things now. But my, I'm very hopeful for the future and for our young people. And you, Dorita? Well, I can only second that. I think hope is our, our way through. And uh, the most important there is the young generation because they're the ones that, that have to do the things. We need them to choose the... Uh, 
their, their, their um, careers uh, to, to kind of work with climate change issues like uh, how do we produce our energy, um, how do we change our habits. So we just need the brightest fields, people to go into the fields and work with these subjects because it's all been proven that we can't do it. It is possible, we just need to go there. And uh, when you look at the, the young people, at least many of those that I know, they are also the ones that are changing their habits. They don't want to buy as much clothes. They go to a second-hand shop and buy clothes. They don't want to eat, they don't eat meat. Uh, they don't, they're very cautious about traveling and going with, with aircrafts. So you can see that there is a great move, especially between in the young generation to, to, to move things. And that gives me a lot of uh, courage that we can do it. Wonderful. That make those answers make me very, you know, make me very happy. All right. Thank you so much to our guests. That concludes today's talk. <laughs>